This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Claire Wright, joining you on the History Listen for Season 2 of Shooting the Past, where each episode a different photograph helps us dive deep into Australian history. At first blush, the photograph that's been sent to me by an ABC RN listener looks like any old picture you'd pluck from a cherished family album. The quality is poor, its sepia tones rough and grainy. In the foreground, a girl sits on a pony, smiling for the camera. She's a healthy-looking lass, a teenager. Her hair is cropped in a boyish 1920s cut. Over her shoulder is slung a large leather satchel. She holds the reins with confidence. But it's what's going on behind the girl on the pony that really captures my attention, creating an eerie cognitive dissonance between the ostensibly happy snap and its disquieting location. In the background, a series of charred tree trunks protrude from the scorched earth, like blackened stalagmites. The closer I look, the more of these burnt shafts I can see. There's not one or two big trees decimated in their prime, but a whole forest, a forest interrupted. Rising beside the ravaged trunks is what looks to be a brand new weatherboard cottage. What was once bush is now ash. It's not exactly an idyllic scene, so why does the girl on the pony look so happy? The woman in the photograph is my grandmother, or was my grandmother Millie. Uh, she was born here in 1913, so there's over a hundred years of connection to this land here. I'm sitting in the one-time schoolyard in Fumina, in the hills of East Gippsland in Victoria, right near the spot where this photograph was taken. Fumina was once a thriving township, but is now just a cluster of houses. I'm with Anne Kilner, the woman who sent me the photo. We've got the photo in front of us, and Anne is keen to tell me about her great-grandparents, Herb and Kate Rankin, and her grandmother, Millie. She had an indomitable spirit, an incredibly strong woman, a very strong woman, as I think more women needed to be in those days. But she had... Um, the most incredible sense of humour. And so some of the memories I have knowing Millie was, and my grandfather Jim, they were incredibly uh, kind-hearted people. But she was very strong-minded and she um, she knew what was right and what was wrong. And, you know, if, if your opinion didn't fit with her worldview, you certainly knew about it. <laughs> she didn't have to say anything and you knew you were in trouble. Just the look um, in her eye? Just the look in her eye, yeah. Can I ask you what you see when you look at this photograph? Yeah, well, I see Millie, my grandmother. She would have been 14 at that point, sitting on her pony um, as she's about to start her first job as mail contractor um, for the community. She's looking pretty happy and she's got a 1920s hairstyle. Um, and uh, here she is sitting on the pony with her mail satchel over her shoulder. Um, next to her newly built house after the 26 bushfires and in the background are the burnt out stumps of the, of the evidence of the 1926 bushfires. I was really intrigued when I first saw this photo of Millie on the horse and the, and the burnt out tree stumps behind and so I did ask her about that but she'd also written down her memories and so had her brother Jack and they were in different spots at the time the fire came through. 
So can you tell me that story? Where their house was, there was land cleared around it, but not a great deal. There was still a lot of tall timbers and, you know, there had been a lot of fallen trees, you know, as well. So there was a lot of timber around the area. Jack had said that um, there was so much timber from one end of the settlement to the other that you could walk on the timbers without putting your feet on the ground. Where Millie's um, family lived, you know, they could keep an eye out for smoke, but, you know, they probably weren't that experienced with fires at that point. And so Jack and Herb, um, my great-grandfather, were at the house and Jack writes that that, uh, his father was coolly smoking a pipe on the back step and, uh, you know, their plan was with one of the neighbours to try and save the house. So that was a decision that they'd made. Um, Kate Rankin um, decided that that wasn't safe enough, that she would take the younger children, Millie and Harry, and there was a a young lady who was visiting with a baby um, to the paddock with a tub of water and some woolen blankets and shelter in the paddock. So um, the paddock was probably the clearest spot in Fumina at that point. As the fire approached, it was night and the reflections of the fire was what made them realise that it was very close. And so throughout the night, one of the neighbours, Mr Mitchell, just basically while they sheltered under the wet blankets, he would be running around stomping out cinders, really. And Millie also said that, you know, the fire would shoot limbs off trees, you know, seemed to be miles away and they just land and so they'd have to stomp on, you know, any of these little sparks that came up. It's been so terrifying for little children. Yeah, and I think the... Um, the woman with the baby just had to keep wetting the baby's lips, mm. um, you know, with the water throughout the night. Um, meanwhile, um, Bert and uh, Jim and um, Jack were trying to save the house when they realised they weren't going to, they were going to lose the house. So the only patch that was um, nearby was the veggie patch. They ran to the cabbage patch and were just basically ducking between falling trees Um, and there was one tree that fell between them they didn't even hear it fall it was the noise of the fire and everything going on was just so so immense yeah after that fire because really you know my great-grandfather had been here for 20 years and that had been his livelihood you know and you know poverty was just extreme it's mm. the um, edge of the depression yes so you know options weren't good the fire relief was pretty good though you know so the communities rallied the good people of Sandringham in Melbourne had um, had had said that they would take um, the families down for a holiday. So they went to Sandringham or to Hampton for a beach holiday for three weeks and were given 15 shillings, which was an absolute fortune. Because this was still summer, uh, of course, the fires went there in February. Yes, in February. Yes, that's right. So um, Millie would have have turned 13 on her holiday. Meanwhile, the fire relief gave some money to rebuild. So... Herb came back and rebuilt, and the house in the photo is the rebuilt house. Post office and the school were rebuilt by June, July, I think, the following year. Yeah, so Millie went back to school um, and for you know a few months, and then finished school and took on took over the mail run. So, how long did Millie have the mail run for? She had the mail run for about three years. She stopped that when my would-be grandfather came in to help. 
um, herb builder roads and he was a very handsome Irishman on a motorbike. His name was Jim Gilsonen. She was 15, I think, when they met. And when did they get married? They got married in 1930. Millie and Jim, when they got married, they lived in the house of a man called Ben Rowley. And his here story in, in here in Fumina. So he had a two room shack. So he um, said they could live in his house and he'd stay on the veranda as she did his cooking and cleaning. Mum would have been born there until the 32 bushfires came out and wiped out Ben Rowley's house. So Millie had now survived two bushfires, 1926, yes. when her family home was burnt down, yeah. and now 1932, when her own home was burnt down, yeah. leaving her and her little children homeless mm. and still they decided to stay yes again again i think it's about poverty really and choices were very limited and the fact that they put so much work into you know into the place they were always very conscious of um, the risk of fire though so tell me what you know about the the black friday bushfires of 1939 and how they affected for minor devastated the whole uh, the whole community, the whole district around here. Just after the 32 bushfires, um, a man who they call an angel in disguise appeared and he said to my grandfather, look, I think that spring would be good for making mud bricks. And the two men made a bunch of mud bricks and built the cottage that they lived in for the next however many years. And that cottage was the only building that survived the 1939 bushfires and the people who were in it. And Jim and Jack, um, Millie's brother, took it in turns to um, take buckets of water out and just would crawl out on their hands and knees around the house to kind of put out any sparks or, you know, flying timber or whatever wet the windows and the doors and so on and so that went on for hours and hours and hours um, throughout most of the day when they hadn't realised that with one of them going in or out that a cow had come into the cottage <laughs> and it's only a little two-room cottage so they had to try and get the cow out and the cow stood alongside the um, the cottage and survived. It was the only animal I think that survived the, that fire. How many people died in 39 around here? There were 13 people on Friday the 13th who died. They were always concerned about bushfires, but this was where they lived and, you know, there'd been an investment of so much blood, sweat and tears here. It wouldn't have been an easy thing to have left. My grandfather did worry a lot, though, and so some years later he wanted to leave before the next fire came. And so that's when they moved down to Mount Evelyn. And so what, what year did Millie and Jim leave? I think they left around 46. And how many kids did they have by then? They had six. Yeah. So it's a shame, you know, that um, this beautiful country, I mean, looking at it now, you think how beautiful it is, but, you know, it, it was probably not the right country to open up. And I don't know that, that, you know, the land management people of the day would have understood. And certainly, you know, clearing was what they needed to do in terms of uh, making a living that whether it was the kind of environment they should have been living in or not, perhaps not. <laughs> I'm Claire Wright and this is Shooting the Past on ABCRN. William Howard, in one of the visitors to the colony in 1855, talked about um, this fire-scattering race of rude men 
as he observed them. In other words, they were willful with fire. And you could travel along the train in the Yarrow Valley in the early decades of the 20th century and in an ordinary summer day you would see many fires. People had come to live with fire without realising quite what the capacity of these forests were on certain days. Environmental historian Professor Tom Griffiths from the ANU has written extensively about the mountain ash forests of East Gippsland. I've come to ask him about why the country around Fumina was so vulnerable to bushfire. But first, what does Tom, with his trained eye, see in Anne Kilner's family photo? I see the background landscape, these dead spars of trees that are monuments, if you like, to an earlier fire. I'm guessing to 1919, maybe 1906. And they're still there. And they're there as sort of totem poles, if you like, for what's happening in this place, which is we are making farms out of the forest. But I also see pride in this young woman's face. And I think this is part of the charm of this photograph. Um, the thing that is most beloved in this photograph, I think, it's not the brand new house, which has been built obviously since one of the fires. It's not the landscape in the background. It's not even the horse. It is the satchel over her shoulder that attracts my attention. It looks quite glossy. And I presume that's the mailbag. Uh, and I think her pride comes from her role in the community as a teenager, uh, fulfilling an honoured role, a really an important role. And I guess I say this, my first job was as a postie. And in, in the digital age, we have to remember there's a sacred trust in carrying the post. And I see that there in that photo so beautifully that this scarred, ravaged landscape in the background, yet there is a kind of a pride in civilization being declared here. And the post is a sacred symbol of that. So uh, it is it is a beautiful photograph. What would you say the impact of humans on Australian forest ecology has been? The first Australians who arrived over 65,000 years ago changed the vegetation on this continent. So in terms of understanding bushfire, we have to go back that far. We have to go back into the deep past of the continent and try and understand the way in which Aboriginal people reshaped the forests in this country. And so when Europeans arrived, they, had, they encountered um, a managed lands landscape, a cultivated land, a cultural landscape. It took them a long time to realise that, of course. But when those invaders first ventured into the forests that we're talking about today, the, the forests in the um, rugged mountain ranges of Victoria, they were venturing into forests, some forests, which even Aboriginal people would have been wary of, particularly in high summer after long droughts. They would have used fire sticks to manage those forests and to keep open pathways through them to uh, keep their edges under control. Uh, but they also would have known that these were dangerous forests in summer. So if these mountain ash forests are designed to burn every couple of hundred years, why did we get a situation where there was a fire in the Fumina region in 1926 and again in 1932 and then again in 1939? because Europeans introduced these new sources of ignition and uh, 
So we have a forest which has a life cycle of four or five hundred years. That's how long the a mountain ash lives, being managed, in inverted commas, by puny humans with life cycles of maybe 80 years. And it, that mismatch, I think, explains to some extent the bother that we got into early in the 20th century in these forests, because European uh, settlers were attracted to the forests because it seemed to be perhaps rich soil that was producing these tall trees, these magnificent forests. And they, in order to gain uh, possession of some land, in order to become a settler, a farmer, it was clear what they had to do. Settlers had to clear in order to own the land. By legislation? By legislation. There were Crown bailiffs travelling around uh, monitoring improvements. And that very word of improvements suggests that the land was somehow deficient and it had to be improved. It had to be improved by clearing, above all, by the establishment of a residence, uh, by enclosure, fencing, by cultivation. Uh, and so settlers are driven by the legislative requirements uh, to clear the land. And the way they did that in these great forests is uh, with the alliance of the axe, fire and the plough. So you would cut as many trees as you could. You would ring bark the big trees so that they would die and dry and you would nick the medium-sized ones, and you would wait for the most ferociously hot and fatal day of the summer to let it burn, and you would get it burning. And so uh, there was a theatrical fight with the forests uh, in these, um, this region, and it was the height of that ritual was the Great Burn every summer. And so that produces uh, the cleared landscape in quite dramatically but it's also a landscape which is full of ring-barked and dead stumps and spars. Uh, Dorothea McKellar in her poem, My Country, she talks about her love of the sunburnt country and a land of droughts and flooding rains, but she also talks about um, uh, these um, ring-barked forests, all tragic to the moon. And she's writing in the early 20th century about a landscape that settlers were, it was the background to all their lives. It was, we see it when we look at these photos, it, it looks ugly and it was ugly. It was a landscape in transition. It was a landscape that was damaged and wounded and hurt by the settler invasion. But you're also suggesting that essentially these government regulations were forcing people to dig their own graves. They were. They were forcing them onto land blocks that were too small and where the soil wasn't as good as they had hoped and where really the farming was, was very difficult and the forest fought back. They fought the forest, but the forest fought back. And the thing about fire, of course, is those forests are beautifully evolved to fire. Huge tracts of the state of Victoria have been swept by flame in the most damaging bushfire in its history. Driven before a 50 mile an hour gale, it swept across the dry acres, consuming everything in its path. Flying high over this terrible bushfire in the Blue Mountains, New South Wales, it is possible to feel the heat's effect on our plane, 1,000 feet above it. And among those long hours, an epic story of heroism is written as volunteers fight the demon that endangers lives and property. So what happened is an, uh, an escalating rhythm of intense firestorms began from the late 19th century and escalated through the early 20th century. The 1926 fire comes after 1898, 1906, 
1919, and it's followed by 1932, 1939, and we know it's followed by 1962, 1983, 2009. You know, they're just naming the big firestorms. And I'm very keen that we use this word firestorm because bushfires happen every year, all the time. You can't live in a eucalypt forest without bushfires happening every summer. But firestorms are something peculiar and they tend to happen in these areas that we're uh, talking about around Firmina where there, is, there are mountain ash forests that conspire to create that very firestorm in order to regenerate. So at what point did humans realise that their own behaviour was having an effect on the environment and creating these firestorms? 1939. That was Black Friday and there was a Royal Commission and Judge Leonard Stretton was a magnificent Royal Commissioner uh, who really spoke uh, very clearly and powerfully. Indeed, his report, his Royal Commission report, would you believe it, was prescribed for English literature in schools for many years because it is so beautifully and powerfully written. And it, it was that Royal Commission that really made Australians think, oh my goodness, do you know, we are implicated and the finding of that Royal Commission can be summarised in the single sentence. And he put it, the judge put it all alone, single sentence paragraph, these fires were lit by the hand of man. Now, what that means is that they were not fires that were wholly natural. Of course, they're embedded in the ecological rhythms of the place. But, you know, settlers had exaggerated this natural rhythm into a kind of intensity that not only destroyed them, but also ultimately destroy the forests. Because if you burn these forests too often, then they don't have time to, uh, for the saplings to seed. And you destroy the whole forest and its possibility of future. So it's this intensity and frequency of fire that settlers changed. That's what they brought in that was a new regime. People had come to live with fire without realising quite what the capacity of these forests were on certain days. So Judge Stretton is calling that out. He is, in a way, indicting a whole society. He says this is a case of state suicide. So is there a solution? Or is tragedy inevitable if Australians want to live surrounded by the bush? Can we learn from history? Or can science save us from ourselves? I put these questions to fire ecologist Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst from the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne. We become our own worst enemy in a sense, that thinking that we can have such control over it. We need to work with it, not control it. There's a difference in philosophy. Kevin, as a fire ecologist, as a scientist, when you look at this photograph, what is it that you see? Well, the first thing that strikes me is that this is a, uh, a fire-ravaged landscape. So it's had multiple fires in quick succession, which hasn't allowed it to recover. From a fire point of view, I see that this is a landscape that has been subjected to too many fires, uh, almost certainly as at the hand of man. <laughs> the humans that have moved into this landscape have used fire as a tool, but they haven't really understood how it's uh, affecting the landscape. So I see um, a misunderstood fire landscape when I look at this photograph. The Gippsland forests of Victoria are swept with smoke and raging flame. 
Some of the worst bushfires that Australia has ever experienced. January 1962 was hot and dry. And, even and on Sunday the 14th, the Dandenongs and Central Highlands literally exploded into the state This is a, a very, very sad morning for many people. The fires in South Australia and in uh, Victoria uh, are certainly amongst the worst in Australia's history and maybe the worst. What we should be trying to do really is live in harmony with that fire, understand it and use it. And we can learn a lot from the, the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people in their use of fire. Okay, so what are we left with? Is it, is it risk management? Is it behavioural modification? Risk management, I think, is a currency that we can use. So one of the reasons in my professional career why uh, I developed a risk management uh, model and uh, some tools to, to do risk management is that we're not trying to convert everything into dollars. To understand risk, we need to know what are the values and assets we're trying to maintain. Some of those values and assets are going to be species. Some of them might be um, ecosystems. Some of them might be water. They might be soil um, nutrient values. It may be commercial value, it may be timber, it may, it may be aesthetic values in terms of landscape and and. Um, I'm interested that you haven't included human life in that list. Oh, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> the, thing, the trouble is you can never get away from the human life question uh, and we're always going to protect ourselves. <laughs> so it almost goes without saying, I suppose. But human life won't exist unless you have an environment that supports it. But who's going to look after the bush? So we can and should be looking at the broader landscape and the longer time periods, which in a way the Aboriginal people, again, I'll come back to the Aboriginal people, did. I guess politically we've run into increasing problems that the long-term vision often is not there in government because the government priority is more of a, a two- to three-year uh, option. So what happens often after a, a bushfire disaster is the government will come in and throw millions of dollars into uh, the recovery process, which basically takes the responsibility away from the individual, which moves us away from being smarter and more self uh, reliant and better connected to the environment that we live in. We think we can basically do what we like without consequence because there's some backup in the background. So are you suggesting that the problem isn't that people live in these fire-prone areas, but they need to live in those areas in a more intelligent way? Yeah, I've met people who live in environments that I would never live in because the, the, the bushfire risk is, is too high. But They've done things about uh, the building of their house, about the vegetation around their property, uh, so that if a bushfire comes through, the impact will be uh, relatively minimal. So the, they've dealt to live with that environment and they'll accept being burnt out if that so happens because they love that environment so much that they'll accept that at the occasional bushfire. And for most people, it's a, a once in a lifetime. And if you're really unlucky, it might be two times, twice in a lifetime sort of experience that you have when a large bushfire comes through. So people can live in that environment, but there are others who want to live in that environment and not take the responsibilities. And how does it make you feel looking at this photo now, particularly sitting here smack bang in the middle of the landscape that Millie was sitting on there? Yeah, I've got a strange feeling, I suppose, because I, I wonder at their courage and their resilience. I think this, you know, look at this beautiful country and I just wonder how you could survive something like that and then stay and stay and stay. 
Anne Kilner's family photograph is up on the All Tragic to the Moon episode page on the Shooting the Past website. You'll also find an incredible collection of all the photographs that RN listeners have sent us for this second season. Check them out. My thanks to guests Anne Kilner, Professor Tom Griffiths and Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst. This episode of Shooting the Past was produced by Michelle Rayner with production assistance by Sophie Couchman and sound engineering by Angie Grant. We also had work experience student Gemma O'Toole along for the writer for Minor. Thanks for the social media tips, Gemma. In the next episode of Shooting the Past, I find a studio portrait of an Edwardian family that raises some tricky questions about citizenship, the Australian constitution and the subtle art of belonging. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.